This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Dumeble. And I'm Yannick Maria. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? The Ludum Dare 44 Game Jam. Good. I hope you all played with uh, Yannick's game, and I'm sure you sent a lot of questions to him. But They didn't. Oh, that's okay. But I have uh, some Shame questions. Shame on you, listeners. Uh, I have some questions, so at least uh, I have that. But before we start, it is my turn to hijack the episode with follow-up. Uh-huh. So I'll start with follow-up of follow-up. So um I think it was in the follow-up of last episode. Yeah, it was in the long list of uh, follow-up from the last episode where Yannick talked about the latest VR game that he bought because of receiving a PlayStation Move as a birthday gift. And Yannick and I met last weekend, so I had a chance to play to his latest VR game called Super Shot VR. Super Hot VR, not Shot. Oh man, I put the, oh, okay, I put the S, too much S in, uh, that. So, super hot VR. That's my bad. My not, my notes were not written correctly. I guess I don't know how to copy from Twitter. Yes, I don't know how to copy from Twitter <laughs> when. So, first of all, I'll put a picture of myself that Yannick posted a couple of days ago on his Twitter account. That is called me, uh, nearly destroying his apartment while playing, uh, this game. This game is super fun. But man, it is an exercise. And also about the fact of destroying Yannick's apartment, I would like to mention that he kind of did the same while uh, during his play session to show me the game. <laughs> so I, I assume it was allowed. So here, nothing was in the end broken, but uh, we both uh, hit at the wall, I think, once each. So uh, It happens every time I play. <laughs> I think you should put uh, like some uh, rubber mats on that wall. To just Good for, idea. Yeah. Because you might end up redoing it before you leave that place. Okay, next up. In episode 110, I discuss Battle Royale games. And at the end, I mention one game that I wished I had time to try. Ah. Tetris 99. Nice. Uh, since then, and also in uh, uh, that episode, Yannick mentioned that there was a Twitch Prime deal that gives you one year uh, for free of Nintendo Switch Online. So I took opportunity of it, configured it a bit, and I played. Uh, I played like, about an hour of it uh, last weekend. There was a special event for the 35th anniversary of Tetris, and uh, if you were able to get a hundred points, which Depending of your level of tether skills or the people that were on the game, it took me like it took me about an hour to go from uh, like two points since we did one game a couple of weeks before, and uh, to me getting a hundred point that day to unlock the uh, Tetris Classic. I think it's the Tetris Game Boy team. Yeah. Uh, for that, so I played that just to get it, and then after that, uh, I was late at night, so I went to bed. But so the idea with Tetris 99 is you're competing against 99 opponents on a Tetris uh, playing field, and there's ways to send, uh, quote-unquote attacks, I would call them, or like rows of blocks, more or less. Of garbage same. blocks. Yeah, yeah, garbage blocks, and but and. Of course, it's, it is a battle royale game. The last survivor wins. And the idea here is with any typical Tetris game, the way you quote unquote die is by, uh, putting so much blocks that you end up at the top of the screen. So typical Tetris game, just with the fun aspect of having people throwing you out, uh, throwing you out garbage blocks. And it is quite infuriating. I'm, st- not, I'm still not sure if I fully master this kind of like because uh you can use the right joystick 
to control like there's kind of a couple um of strategies on that joystick where you can say oh only tar- target the people that are about to be ca- KO'd just target the people that are attacking me or like there's four strategies you can also like many choose with the joystick but at least I think that's with the left joystick um, but you can at least choose what it does but to me I don't not really understand because I, I feel some strategy like I end up having shit ton of garbage luck by others and some less but Still unsure if I properly understand it, but it was quite fun. Uh, kind of a good way of uh, playing Tetris and having fun with Tetris with any uh, PvP element uh, of any Battle Royale games. So if you get your Nintendo Switch online, which if you are a Twitch Prime member, okay, if you're on Amazon Prime, you should get for your one year free. As a quick reminder, I think you can find it on the Twitch site at some place or just google that twitch prime nintendo switch online and you get a coupon code for three months free first and after i think it's i think it's a month or two after you enable that first one then you'll get the remaining nine months uh coupon that will be available in your uh twitch prime deal and it's kind of fitting i know tony and i were wanted to uh buy the family uh uh switch online package but since the new Pokemon is not out yet, and it usually it's where Tony will like play online with any uh, Nintendo games, uh, and there's rumors that it's coming maybe this fall. I've, he did mention that it's not that bad that we don't have a family plan yet, that at least he could play some of the games he wanted on my account. And since that there's not that much games these days uh, that uses it, I don't really mind about, quote-unquote, my stats. Uh, I do have a strategy for you to try out. Okay. Which is in Tetris 99, you can choose to prioritize attacking players that have medals. And generally, the players that have the most medals are the best players in your game. Okay. So if you want to take out the best players so you have more chance to actually play with weaker players, then you should be aiming for medals. Right. And the way you throw garbage blocks at others is by making quote-unquote tetris right this is yeah. like if you clear out like four four rows and a row uh, four rows at once you then send up four rows to these uh, opponents yeah because the the risk you have when you choose ko's is that a lot of people are choosing ko's because it looks like the correct option and the problem is if everybody's prioritizing ko's they're sending garbage blocks to a player that might be dead already by the time they reach so you're losing garbage blocks that could be going towards something else, whereas metals will reprioritize better. Oh, huh, good to know. Then uh, I'll try a metal, but I, uh, I'm sure I've tried all of them, and um, that was not fun. But uh, yeah, that I think that's the only strategy aspect of it, and I need to maybe play it more so better understand it. So I'll try that next time I play. Good. Uh, last but not least, it's a long one, but it's about my uh, the about last episode episode. Uh, 112 about my experience uh, at NS North 2019 and we got some follow up from NS North itself. Uh, mm. So Philippe Casgrain, co- a colleague and NS North organizer, replied to some of Yannick's comment about the Kino Karaoke event that they do every year. Yannick was suggesting that they do the chicken chicken slide deck. By the way, I watched this uh, video because I never heard of it and oh it's my. The best. Effing God, it is quite something. Yeah. So I sh- you should go back to episode uh, 112, go in the show notes, and you'll see it. But uh, I'll put a link in the show notes from the NS North account itself. But more or less, what Philip was saying is that they did consider Chicken Chicken for 
the Kino Karaoke event this year, but they forgot if they already did it in past edition. So they were like, nah, if, since we're unsure, then just assume that we did it and not put it in um, the lineup of side decks for this year. Uh, continuing on the tweet feedback regarding NS North, uh, NS North presenter and owner of the famous calculator, calculator app PCalc, James Thompson, sent us a quick note about, uh, the last episode. So thanks, James, and thanks for the good feedback. Now let's move on to some follow up about, uh, my experience and what I summarize itself. Uh, so in the first section where we talk about, when I talked about uh, Ken Skoshenda's opening keynote, we kind of discuss, Yannick and I, about some... You mentioned, Yannick, excuse me, that uh, there was some possible existence of WWC videos where Ken was mainly hosting them. And thanks to friend of the show, Chuck Snyder, I have the official list. Nice. So the first one was in WWC 2011, session 112, titled Writing Easy to Change Code, Your Second Most Important Goal as a Developer. In 2012, session 212 titled basic plus basics plus habits building your software projects to last and the last one was in 2014 session 237 titled a strategy for great work i think i've watched all of those (laughs) good and i'll put links to the show notes and also chuck made me sure that i mentioned that there's an important psa's about those links Please, 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 if you want to watch it, you'll be sadly forced to never open them on iOS because of universal links. So, of course, the WWDC app is registered to open all uh, links that are from the WWDC website and the developer website uh, section. And according to Chuck, because I didn't try them, but what he told me is the app will then be registered to uh, to download this, uh, to open this link, but the app itself cannot play those older videos. So you're kind of stuck in a bad loop where you cannot go back to the website because it wants to go to the app, but the app is like, I don't know what this, what is this video. So you'll be forced to watch it on a sad computer that is called the Mac. Dun, dun, dun. Doesn't iOS still have the thing for universal links where you can tap in the upper right corner of the thing to go back to the web version? I, I guess. I guess. I don't remember the last time I've seen those, but I do know that I've seen that on uh, iOS I've before. I've seen those, but uh, like I said, I haven't tried. You know what? Let me quickly try it. I could do that. Re- oh, no, I don't have the... Uh, no. Womp, womp. I don't have the WDC app on my phone. So, Or the other solution is to just uninstall the WDC app and then voila, problem solved. It will open yep. on the website. So, uh, but yeah. So, three videos. There are... Uh, more or less, like from what Chuck told me, because we watch some of it, is like the more they evolve throughout the years, the more they're becoming closer to what his book is about and what uh, we saw at NS North. So it is quite interesting that some of his previous uh, work was done during WWC regarding uh, this type of keynotes last uh, presentation. Last comment about a session itself is in part of Lena's voiceover talk where we, which was one of the accessibility talk that I really enjoyed. She mentioned one of the tips and tricks that she, uh, ran into while being a devoted, uh, voiceover uh, user. Uh, she mentioned that the Twitter app has a feature to add caption to images for visually impaired users. And Yannick and I were discussing whether this functionally was available for uh, this ability to add metadata to pictures was available to third-party 
client and I accidentally discovered it last week in Tweetbot. Uh, now that I realize it, it's quite simple, quote unquote, simple to do. Uh, the idea is just, just go to the compose tweet view in Tweetbot. You attach a picture and it becomes in a small thumbnail after being attached. Uh, once it is attached, you just click on it again or tap on it. And at that point, an action sheet will become on screen and there will be multiple options. And one of them will be to add a description for visually impaired users. Uh, I did not try it after that, but when I saw that, I was like, oh, I need to take a note. And then because we were uh, wondering if that was available in third-party client. So it seems that third-party client can create data for that and then also read it. So I guess uh, Tweetbot, when used in VoiceOver, will be able to read that information to its users. And I'm pretty sure it shows up under the image as well in Tweetbot if you have it not on VoiceOver. Huh. Okay. Uh, that's uh. I, since it feels, it seems that people that are posting are not putting it in my timeline, so I don't really see it. But I guess I see it maybe like once every month, so it's okay. not very common. Okay. Then, then maybe next time you uh, run into one of those tweets, make sure to send me. I really, I'm really curious to see how it is uh, layout in Tweetbot itself. Will do. Good. And that was it for me. So see you, Nick. That, that, that's how we do follow up. Not well, like wait, 30 I minutes. I have follow-up myself. Oh, I'm sure you had, but that's all we do, concise follow-up. <laughs> concise, sure. Uh, <laughs> so first off, we need to apologize for like the disaster that was last episode. Yes, that was really bad. Yeah, so uh, a lot of things went wrong. Uh, namely, during the recording, the internet went down twice. Uh, and we had to do a bunch of weird shit to edit the podcast. And uh, you could have even misposted the podcast once or twice. Um, yeah, once or twice for sure. Yeah, and I accidentally forgot to hit a button because it had been a month since our last episode. And there were like seven minutes of silence in the episode, in the middle of the episode. Uh, and... We just want to apologize because it's not up to our usual quality standards. Uh, now that we're back into the groove of doing podcasts regularly, I should get it right this week. Um, but not doing a podcast for a month, like all of my editing muscles had atrophied. Yeah. And on my side, since I'm really used to, uh, I'm really used for you to deploy the website since I was, uh, in Vancouver, I asked you to do it. I kind of forgot to, uh, li- literally pulled your changes uh from the live server to my ipad and from uh, github to my ipad so i kind of overrode some of the previous ipad uh the previous episode by accident but i uh, quickly fixed it and uh you might have seen uh episode uh 112 and 111 being uh, missed order in some of your uh favorite podcast client of choice but it should be fixed by now for sure yep uh i also have a follow-up for episode 109 uh, which was our episode about uh, smart home stuff, mainly because stuff is happening with Nest over the last week. Well, actually, Google I.O. happened, and at Google I.O., they sort of announced they were rebranding the entire Google Home brand to Google Nest, which is kind of strange. Uh, and they are also shutting down the existing Nest API, the Works with Nest API, and they are replacing it with the Works with Google Assistant API, which sounds fine, <laughs> except... Those are two completely different things that don't exactly do anything in common. So if you were interested in integrating with the actual Nest devices that existed before they renamed to Google Nest, um, you can no longer do that. You can only interact with stuff over Google Assistant. And uh, 
sort of like the Amazon Smart Assistant, you don't necessarily have APIs to do stuff in the home because Google wants to be the only person in control of that. Um, so I'm going to put a link in the show notes because I don't want to dwell on this too much longer uh, to the What's Happening page on the Nest website, which is a great name for a web page, really. What's happening? Uh, so go look at what's happening. But it's just to warn you that there are risks, even if something supports all voice assistants today. Tomorrow, someone can buy them and decide they're shutting out all of the other voice assistants, although they have re-announced that they are at least going to work with Amazon uh, to be compatible there. So that's good. That's it for my follow-up. CI can be concise, too. I'm happy. I'm happy to see that. And this episode is kind of almost all follow-up, too. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I heard that you're becoming a, a, a game developer now, something like that. Yeah, so some of our longtime listeners may remember episode nine. Uh, episode nine was about game development with the Love 2D game engine. It was recorded in front of a live studio audience of the Kanagawa Prefectural Police. It was great. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were in Japan. Uh, uh, yeah, I remember that one. It was great. Um, so this is kind of a successor to that because I used the Love 2D engine for this project again. Um, the way this completely started is back in december during my office holiday party i was drunk and i was on twitter which is a bad combination and apparently woof was also uh, my friend woof who is an illustrator was also on twitter drunk because he was maybe at a holiday party i don't know he's pretty much always partying really uh and he tweeted that he wanted to participate in the ludum dare game jam again in 2019 um so before i get too much deeper into that i need to explain what the ludum dare game jam is uh, so game jams in general is you have a given period of time and you have to develop a video game within that period of time. And then at the end, there's usually some judging and then prizes or something like that. Uh, Ludum Dare is one of the big ones. Uh, and in fact, it's technically two game jams. There's the compo, which is, uh, solo participants only and 48 hours of time to develop. And the jam, which is what we did, which allows teams of any size and 72 hours of development. So I took two days off from work, uh, actually a day and a half off of work to put on either end of those um, that weekend, and we were off to the races. At the very start of the jam, they announce a theme, which you're encouraged to use as a jumping off point for finding your game idea. You are not required to use it, but there is a category in the voting that is tied to the team, and generally people try to stick to it. And then at the end of the jam, you have an extra hour after your 72 hours or 48 hours or whatever to upload your game and submit it to the Ludum Dare site. After that, there is a three to four week voting period where jam participants can go play other participants' games and leave ratings on them. Uh, the more ratings you leave on people's games, the more visible your game becomes on the website. And then at the end of that voting period, a winner is chosen for both the compo and the jam. And the prize is bragging rights there is no prize you just like i think the faq says the prize is you've got a game that you developed at the end of it it's really made to encourage people to develop games and there isn't so much a reward although you do get visibility fame and sometimes like people actually take the games that they develop during the game jam and flesh them out into actual games uh, which is also very interesting before the jam, since I knew quite a ways out that I wanted to participate with this, I uh, told Wolf, like, hey, I'm a big fan uh, of your art, and 
I've never really done game development. Like I've tinkered a little bit with a game engine here or there, but I've never really made anything, especially not something that was public to the to the whole internet. Are you willing to take a chance on me and we can develop something together? And luckily he was very gracious and let me do so. So I was like, all right, now I need to prepare so that I don't fuck up completely. Uh, so I made a list of elements that I needed to familiarize myself with uh, to be able to get up and running quickly during the game jam proper. Uh, and I had originally intended to work on learning those notions during my lunch breaks for the month leading up to the jam. So the entire month of April, I was basically thinking, okay, during my lunch break, I'm going to do some game dev stuff. In practice, that didn't quite work. My preparation lasted about a week. Um, I did get some cool stuff developed within that week, um, but my main obstacle was one of my coworkers really likes to talk, and he would keep asking me things during my lunch hour, and it was just distracting me from doing anything. And the other thing is, he would be looking at what I'm doing, and I'm very bad at coding when I have an audience. Uh, so it was very awkward and I just decided, no, fuck this. I can't do this anymore. Um, but in that week of preparation, I developed two things. I developed a layer system and a controls manager. So what's a layer system? Well, by default, uh, Love2D, as I mentioned on the original episode, as one of my sort of complaints, is there's nothing like scene management or anything that allows you to move from one screen to one screen, um, iOS developers might think of this as uh, view controllers, right? So a, a view controller is this screen full of content, this screen full of content, and then there's a navigation controller which transitions you from one to the other, for example. Uh, none of that exists in Love 2D. Um, so I wanted to sort of recreate that kind of navigation controller-ish thing that could handle a stack of, of screenfuls of content. But I also wanted to go one level deeper than that and say, well, hmm, sometimes when you pause a game, there's an overlay that comes up on top of it, and you can still see the underlying layer under it, but it's just like hijacking all of the run loop under that, and the input isn't being passed to the underlying layer, but you're still passing the draw calls on to the underlying layer. And I wanted that kind of control. So it was kind of like Photoshop layers, but for entire chunks of the game where I can stack them up one on top of the other. Uh, and we'll be getting back to that a little bit later. And the other thing I did as a controls manager, this is really basic. I gave it a list of controls I needed to have bound. And then I can refer to those controls by name when I'm handling events instead of looking for specific keys. Uh, and this could serialize those changes to a JSON file on disk and then load it back on the next launch. So you could keep your safe controls, and it had default controls and all that stuff. So that preparation was cool. Uh, I knew it wasn't going to be enough uh, to just like do what I think I'd have to do. So I decided to ask some of my friends for advice. So I made a thread on select button where I asked uh, some more experienced Game Jam participants what advice they had for me. And uh, one of my friends, Ashley, he said, um, your initial idea is likely to be too ambitious, so constantly be rescoping. Rest well, take time to think through your ideas. Messy code is fine as long as it gets the job done, uh, because probably you're going to have to refactor anyway when you're going to, uh, if you ever go back to that code. Uh, getting feedback on your project during the jam can help you lean into the better parts of what you have, and don't tunnel vision yourself into being locked into a crappy idea. Pretty good advice. Um, and then another god posted and said, generally like the 
the time frames that things should be ready. So get something going on Friday night, be playable by Saturday afternoon, and then for the last half of the jam, you should be playtesting, fun testing, and making adjustments. I think that's a little bit ambitious for a first timer, um, but I can see how that could work, um, especially if you're if you're fine with a lower level of polish. Feels to me too that those advice are uh, great for any type of like maybe like just prototype or just uh, even sometimes or just like working on features like go like go quick and uh, like just do a, a first draft and that that relates to the reason why I'm bringing it up is because it relates to what I was doing today. I have this, a new feature to add in the app and I was like I just right now I want dummy data, no refreshing of the data. I just want to see the screen with the data on it and the kind of the correct presentation and that's what i spend the day doing and i end up with that at the end of the day and then i'll then go to the next step and polish and polish so i really love those advice by the way yeah it's pretty good advice uh and i'll put a link to the thread in the show notes so you can go see the whole extent of the advice but i took what i valued the most and put it in the show um now we need to get talking about mechanics this is my favorite part uh so i didn't mention what the theme was uh for this game jam the theme was your life is currency I, well, first of all, I should mention that the theme is open to voting in the week or so before the game jam starts. Uh, so it's done in like three batches where they put out, I think, 16, uh, 16 theme ideas in three batches. And then they take the most popular of those three batches, uh, votes and merge them into one list, which becomes the final list. And then it goes by a vote like that. Uh, you can upvote and downvote and neutral vote on all of the uh titles which is strange and they show the results for the voting at the end and all of them had negative scores so basically nobody <laughs> liked any of the titles uh, <laughs> the themes which is kind of strange but i guess it says something about negativity on the internet and yeah so it, it was really cool to be able to see like oh, I really hope that title wins. And then you find out it's like the second to last one or whatever. It's like, it was interesting. It also sort of got you to think about like what's in common with all of these themes that maybe we can start thinking about the idea of our game before we even really know what the theme is. So in our case, Your Life as Currency, we had two obvious angles we could take it. We could take it the mechanical route, which is like very simply pay life or sacrifice characters for X benefit. Or you can go the metaphorical way and say, well, this is a game about capitalism because that's what capitalism is. Um, we didn't want to get too political, so we chose the mechanical angle. Um, and the idea we got uh, actually came out of uh, something I had thought of, which was aristocrats decks in trading card games. Uh, what aristocrats decks are in Magic is uh, you have some sort of creature on the board that lets you sacrifice other creatures and get a repeatable effect. And generally, you'll have other cards which create multiple uh, creatures so you can repeat those effects multiple times. So repeatable incremental advantage. And you constantly have more creatures in your deck. Whereas in our game, we didn't really want to have to code structures that can spawn new units for you because that's more menus to code, that's more animations to make, that's a lot of stuff to do. So... You just start with a number of creatures on the board, and if you want to, you can sacrifice them for permanent buffs to specific units. Instead of having repeatable incremental advantage, it's sort of fixed one-time permanent advantage. 
And so the game we came out of was a basic strategy RPG. If you've seen something like uh, Fire Emblem or Advance Wars, very similar kind of top-down structure. Uh, you have two categories of units. You have hero units and generic units. What makes generic units generic is you can have multiples of the same thing. So we have three g- different kinds of generic units, and they are shared amongst the enemy team and the player team. Um, by sacrificing a generic unit, you get one of its currency. So for each of the types of generic units, uh, there's a corresponding currency. And you can buy special abilities on hero characters with the currency you gain from sacrificing those generic units. Oh, that's how you get those currencies. Like, uh, okay, I think, I guess we'll talk about it uh, later, how, uh, what I think about the game. But, uh, <laughs> one of my question, one of my first question was that. So that's good to know. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go through the four abilities we have in the game. Uh, we could have added more. I wanted to do some interesting stuff. So, it sort of had to be a low number because it would have too many animations otherwise. Um, so our abilities are double strike. When attacking, you deal two blows to your opponent. So this effectively means you get two dice rolls per attack phase. Uh, still doesn't mean that it's going to hit because y- your dice roll could roll on a miss. Um, just like any RPG, really. Reflector gate. When defending, reflect 50% of the damage you took back to the opponent. There's Healing Aura, which heals you for 15% at the start of your turn. And there's Hunger Blade, which is when attacking, you heal 50% of the damage you deal to your opponent on yourself. Uh, which means you constantly have more health coming in. Uh, and this is where I come to balancing is hard. <laughs> so if you play with no special abilities at all, which is how I assume from how you've been talking that you played the game... Uh, it turns out that the game is relatively balanced. Um, I had the spreadsheet, which unfortunately I think I didn't save, which sounds stupid, uh, where I tried to determine the optimal HP, attack, and defense values for all of the units so that enemies were killed on average within a certain number of hits, depending on the matchup. In general, if you're putting a generic unit versus a generic unit, it should take about four blows for one to kill the other. If you're doing um, generic unit on... Actually, I don't think that's right. No, it, no it's like, I think it's one or two depending on yeah, your luck. It, it's about two hits uh, to kill generic units between each other. It's 4.3 hits if you're trying to kill a hero unit with a generic unit. And then it's like one to two hits from a hero unit to kill a generic unit or something like that. Uh it was trying to be roughly rock, rock, paper, scissors within those numbers. Um, and those numbers were more or less what felt right from my limited experience playing Fire Emblem games. It felt okay for like a early level, uh, in the game. So I was like, eh, I guess this could work out. And the numbers did actually turn out to more or less revolve around that as long as no special abilities were in play. Uh, the problem with special abilities is then, then, you sort of make things too good by accident, which is what happened here. Um, like I said, the three types of generic units, uh, they each have their own currency. And sort of the secret behind these three different currencies is that each of the generic units is strong in a, per- a specific stat. 
And sacrificing that unit gets you the currency that benefits that stat. So if you want offensive powers, you have to sacrifice the unit with a good attack. If you want defensive abilities, you have to sacrifice units with a good defense. And if you want healing abilities, you need to sacrifice units with good HP. And this is where we get to the costs of the various abilities, is that aside from Double Strike, which is four attack mana in a way... Um, Every other ability is sort of a mix, I think, uh, where you need a certain number of one. No, that's not. Tr- no, it is true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so a lot of them they were required a couple of stats. Right, and the way it was balanced is, I mean, in a certain way, like healing is also technically defense, so it's hard to decouple those two. So I think it was like you needed uh, two defensive and one healing because it would grant you healing indirectly and stuff like that so the costs were interesting and i think all the costs feel appropriate for the abilities as i had imagined them but in practice the abilities and their power levels are wildly inconsistent for the cost so the map has enough units on it that you can only have about two abilities on a hero character at once and not more and some combos are too good Reflector Gate plus Hunger Blade is way too good because you're taking reduced damage when defending, you're healing a percentage of damage dealt when attacking, and what it basically means is that your HP stays neutral the entire game. You never really lose HP, and you're dealing a ton of damage to your opponent because they're taking damage when they hit you, and you are damaging them. Which means there's almost no risk involved in doing anything. And in fact, sometimes one of the best strategies is... You just sacrifice everything at the start of the game. You take those two pairs and you can kill everything on the map and win. And it's not that hard. On the opposite side, you'd think, oh, double strike sounds really strong. Because if it takes about two hits to kill a generic unit, you think, oh, well, double strike can kill a unit more often than not in one hit. The problem is, if it doesn't die in the first hit, which can happen uh, because it's all dice roll based, um, you're still taking damage, and you're taking the same amount of damage. Uh, and because Double Strike is a very all-in spell uh, ability where you need to invest a lot of a specific kind of energy into it, you don't really have healing power that can actually get you back up. So you're probably going to die. And so really the way to look at Double Strike, even though it doesn't really seem that way, is you have almost no survivalism. So you get a few turns to burst damage, but then you die. And so it's not a great power. Whereas Reflector Reflector Gate plus Hunger Blade is just like, you have a ton of survivability, you deal a consistent amount of damage, therefore it is a much better and safer pick. Uh, Healing Aura is just kind of worthless because 15% is not enough. Um, I wanted the healing percentage to be high enough that it feels worthwhile but i also didn't want it to be too high where you're effectively invincible and it turns out that you don't even need healing aura for that because the combination of reflector gate and hunger blade is too good um so healing aura is objectively the worst ability in the game because it heals you for the least amount of damage of any combination of these attacks so yeah, balancing is hard, and uh, I'll sort of mention it later, but I play a lot of games that have a lot of balance issues, <laughs> and 
I have a new respect for the people who work on those games because I've had to balance like literally five things in this game. And even I couldn't get that right. Of course, I only had like a day to do it, but still, it's not great. Though I should point out that one of the smart things I did is all of these numbers that are used within uh, all of my like my my combat algorithm and all that stuff. All of those were in constants that were in a easily locatable file so i could just tweak those things and i didn't have to go directly in the code um so yeah that's fun okay so next up i want to talk about enemy ai um enemy ai is also hard and it's not something that i had necessarily thought i would have had to do uh before i mean it's obvious because video games often have ai but i didn't really think about it our AI really sucks because i wrote it really quickly uh and it's extremely exploitable because it technically can't do as much as the players can every turn so in our game a human player can move and if at the end of their move uh they are adjacent to an enemy unit they can attack that enemy unit immediately our enemy ai unfortunately can only do one or the other they can either move or attack but not both so the way this is exploitable is if you move around the enemy unit each turn they won't really be able to attack you because they're going to have to keep up with you. And I didn't notice this until it was far too late to do anything about it, uh, which is why I didn't fix it because it was like day three and I was like, oh shit, this is broken. So didn't fix it. Uh, another thing is I had to add a pathing algorithm to, uh, well, not just to the enemy AI, but like I wanted to have a natural looking walk animations. So like in Fire Emblem games, when you're saying, okay, I'm going to move from point A to point B, uh, it walks on a nice clean path at a nice clean rate and everything. And you don't have to worry about it. Um, the way I had done it before we even had enemy turns or anything like that is I would keep a cue of which buttons you pressed. So if you said, okay, I want to go up two tiles and right one tile. I would say up, up, right, and I would keep that in my queue. And then I would play back those moves. I would go up one at the normal walking speed, up one, then right. Because otherwise, if you just do the animation straight from your original point to your end point, you're probably going to cut diagonally or something. And if you don't multiply your length by the number of tiles you're walking, it's just going to look stupid. And you're going to just like run all the way to the other thing. Uh, and like it's going to run diagonally so probably your speed isn't going to be quite right either um so i decided to eventually add a pathing algorithm because what would happen is okay for the player i could actually queue up those up up right uh directions and that was cool i could play them back there was the weird side effect that if you were deciding to run around in circles and just like run around in circles like three or four times and then finish your move uh, you would actually look like you're running around in circles when you would play back the animation afterward, which is kind of goofy. And the enemy didn't have any of that because it was just moving from point A to point B. So it was always running diagonally way too fast and it looked really stupid when you were watching the game. Or if there were any obstacles in the way of getting to the destination point, because it would actually calculate what the destination point should be first and then look if there are any obstacles in the way. Uh, it would just run through the obstacles. And that meant you could run through walls. You could run through other units, which is stuff that you're not supposed to be allowed to do. Uh, so yeah, I added an A-star uh, pathing algorithm 
I just got a library off GitHub and integrated it, which is something I did a lot for this project. This reminds me of bad stories of my university to A-star stuff. Oh, <laughs> poor you. Well, see, I didn't implement it. I just gave it data and it did it for me, which is yeah. exactly the way I like to do it. <laughs> I remember one, I think one like practical work or one like exercise I had to do was to implement one and mine didn't work. Yay! I think the last time I tried to implement one of those was when I was doing the transit authority app I was working Ooh, on ages yeah, yeah. ago. Um, and I had something that was semi working, uh, but I never finished it. And now I was like, I'm not going to have the time to finish this project if I'm trying to write it from scratch. So I grabbed a library and I said, this is good enough. No, that makes total sense to write a library. I like, even today I wouldn't write it at university. It makes some sense, but it's a good learning exercise. Yeah. 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 Okay, next up I want to talk about collaboration because I've mostly talked about shit I've done. I want to talk about Wolf because he's cool. I love him. Uh, so Wolf did art, uh, notably pixel art, sprites, and illustration. He also did map design to a certain degree. Uh, we'll talk more about the map design stuff in a little bit. Uh, and music. I did code, which if you compare the number of bullet points that Wolf did and the number of bullet points that I did, I only did one thing. He did like four things, except well, without my thing, we wouldn't have a game. <laughs> okay, that sounded a lot more, a lot worse than I intended. So I'm sorry for that. No, that's uh, just funny. That's good. We originally intended for uh, one of Wolf's musician friends to contribute music to the project. Um, but unfortunately, due to the timing, uh, Ludum Dare 44 was on the same weekend as M3, which is a Dojin music fair in Japan, which means that all of his friends were out selling CDs and were not there to make music for a game. So Wolf had to do the music himself. Uh, I think this actually ended up being a good thing because it meant that Wolf couldn't draw as much art and it mean meant that I had exactly the right amount of assets to implement in game for the time period we had, which worked out great. Uh, another thing that was kind of weird is Despite being in the same time zone, Wolf and I have wildly different schedules where he goes to sleep at the time I wake up and he wakes up at like 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It's really weird, but hey, it's cool. I'm, I'm down with weird uh, schedules. Uh, so what it meant is we had a weird overlapping period of like 3 p.m. to midnight Eastern where we could work together and then we sort of just drifted off. Um, it was also really cool because Wolf streamed his sprites and his illustration work on his Twitch channel when oh, he was nice. doing it all every night of the thing. So we had people in the chat who were looking in at what we were doing and it was really cool. Uh, and we did all of this coordination and stuff on discord. Okay. Back to the code. Uh, <laughs> so uh, one of the things that Ashley mentioned in uh, his advice was uh, rescope, rescope, rescope. We luckily did not need to rescope. Uh, part of this was due to being sm smart in air quotes and using shortcuts. So one of the things is the map. The map was one large pre-baked image instead of one giant sprite sheet with, uh, like the way games usually do it is you have your, like all of your palette of different tiles you can have on the map. And then you have a tile map that tells it, okay, this tile at this coordinate uses this texture this one is this texture this one is this texture and sometimes you can also uh, associate um properties to those textures and say okay this is a wall so you don't you want to handle collision for this uh or this is empty space don't let people walk into this or other properties like that 
our code would have been so much cleaner if we had used a tile map. Um, but we would have had to figure out how to draw it, how to make it scroll correctly. And that was just a lot of stuff that I didn't want to really think about for my first game. So we just made a large pre-baked image. Um, we have a giant string in the code of the app, which is a giant serialized list of all of the tiles on the map you can't walk onto. It is huge. It is disgusting. If you open the thing in Visual Studio Code, like there's this giant black block in the right column where you can see like a code overview. That's the local, uh, that's the serialized object and it looks gross. Don't do this in your code, guys, but I needed to do something to block collision on those things. So I did the quickest thing I could think of. One of the things that came up during uh, the coding process was sort of animation anxiety. Um, there were sort of two aspects to this. There was like Wolf has an actual game on Steam you can buy. It's called Blue Revolver. It's a very good game. It was programmed by Danbo, which is a great guy. Game's phenomenal. I'm like this first time developer with a very high quality uh, artist. And I'm like, shit, I'm not going to be able to do justice to his art. And that was something I was very afraid of the whole time. Like ever since I knew we would be working together, I was like, shit, I really better not fuck this up. I hope at least our game is presentable. Uh, and I was really just worried about animations because I never really did sprite animations before. Like I was able to animate like a rectangle moving smoothly from one side of the window to the other side of the window. Like that's fine. But I never got um, like actual multi-sprite animations where frames have given length and all of that stuff and to coordinate all of that. And to make things worse, our game was especially dependent on chains of animations. Because if you think about it, the enemy turn, you're really just looking at multiple animations play out one after the other, after the other, after the other. And the end of the animation triggers another thing that triggers another animation that triggers another thing that triggers. An and it, it's like this really complicated Rube Goldberg machine that's trying to play a strategy game. And I was really scared about getting this stuff to work. And the problem is it took two days for animations to sort of click with me. So I used a library called animate a N I M with an eight, uh, it handles most of the sprite animation stuff for you. So that's good because I didn't really have to worry so much about just getting the basics of the sprite animation correct. I could just point it to a file, say, okay, make each frame 0.2 seconds in length. And I didn't have to really worry about anything. I just had to put two lines of code in the right places and it would handle that for me. I still had the chains of animation story about. And the way I dealt with it is... is kind of gross but at least it worked reliably enough for our game to work which is all i am happy about and that is callbacks um i developed a lot of our objects with uh functions that take callbacks so i can say okay animate the hp bar from x hp to y hp and call back this function when it's done um show the healing animation on this character and send me a callback when it's done. Show the defending thing. Send me a callback when it's done. And the callback structure was a lot easier to actually get that stuff to work. Um, it's still incredibly messy because it turns out I was structuring the entire game wrong. Uh, we mention a lot of things about app architecture on the show because we're, well, we have histories. I, I have a history. The good is still doing it. 
of developing iOS applications where there is a very strongly encouraged and sometimes even considered to be enforced structure to how you make an iOS application. With games, especially games in sort of a loosey-goosey format as Love2D, where you don't really have any enforced structure at all, you can structure things however you want, and not having a recommended structure in place made it very confusing to me as a first-timer for how I need to structure my things, and I sort of structured them the way that made sense to me, and I realized that there are a lot of issues with doing the things that way, and that's when I found out about ECS. It's the MVC of gaming. So MVC, for people who don't know, Model View Controller is a very popular design pattern that you see in app development, where models are your data, uh, views are the presentation of that data, and controllers orchestrate the relations between like what, what modifications are done to the model and what things are passed to the view to make things show up correctly on screen. Games do not use that structure at all, and instead they use ECS, which is Entity Component System. As a programmer, it often sucks to know that you're doing things in what's considered to be the incorrect way. Like, if you know the optimal way, you want to be doing it the optimal way. But in this case, I couldn't, and I'll get into why in a little second. So ECS is basically that. It is the universal standard architecture for game engines, and it breaks things down into three parts. The entity, which is the unique identifier which identifies an in-game object, The component, which is a grouping of properties that is attached to an entity. So if you're an Objective-C developer, you might think of this as somewhat like a protocol, or if you're a Swift Java uh, developer, you might think interfaces, but for state only. There are no functions associated to a component. It's really just data that's stored. So examples of components that you can think of is drawable, animatable, physics object, generate sound, player controlled, AI controlled, etc. And then the other part of ECS is the system, which is quite literally that. It is a subsystem of the game's run loop that touches one or more components on each of those entities. So your physics system, for example, is probably going to look at the physics object component. Your drawing system is probably going to look at drawable and maybe animatable. Your sound system is going to look at generate sound. Your AI system is going to look at AI controlled. Your control system is going to look at player controlled and all of that stuff. So it's really a completely different way of structuring these things. And the reason I didn't really gravitate towards using ECS in our game is lack of knowledge. Not lack of knowledge of what ECS is, but since I've never really made a game before, I don't know enough about what game development looks like in practice to know how to structure my components correctly. Like, what are the interdependencies with these uh, things? So, for example, drawable and animatable. Like, animatable is kind of a subclass of drawable in a way. Like, it's you're going to draw something that animates, obviously. But how much of drawable is in animatable and vice versa? Like, there was that kind of stuff. There was, like... Does physics have an impact on some other part of the game? Uh, like, what's the impact of player-controlled versus physics object if you're trying to control something that is falling down? Like, I don't know all of these relations because I've never had to deal with it before. And as much as I wanted to structure my game with ECS, 
I didn't know enough about those dependencies to actually be able to make the right call. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to make this game in a completely random architecture that makes no sense. And I will learn from that experience what goes together. And then next time I work on a game, I'll be able to ECS it correctly. Uh, it just kind of sucks because you always feel like you're doing things incorrectly because you are, but you need to go through that to actually know what you're doing later. Um, so it's kind of a weird learning experience and it's not really something that you see often in other types of development because like you can pretty much make MVC work anywhere. True, but we did discuss that uh, to master MVC, it does take a lot of trials and errors. So yeah, it's not to say that you can't do it. It's just like, I think at a certain point, like in modern software development, like you're almost expected to know MVC, mm. which is sort of the same thing that happens with in game development with ECS. Like a lot of people look at people who structure games in a way other than ECS as like crazy people who don't know <laughs> what they're doing. And like, yeah, just the same way that people who aren't familiar with MVC when they're learning for the first time have to figure it out a couple, first couple of times. Like, I've never really had to go through that again. Like, to a certain degree, FRP frameworks, uh, functional reactive programming frameworks, uh, like what we use at work, uh, like Riot or React or all of those, Angular 2, if you want to include that, those are a very different approach. But ECS feels like a level even further than that, where it's even further from what I'm usually developing in, that it's so much of a stretch. And because I have no domain knowledge of game development, it's even bigger. It really feels like learning programming for the first time, which is not an experience I've had in a very, very long time because I've been programming for really fucking long. Um, so it was exciting, but it was also kind of stressful because I always felt like, oh God, I've sunk into something way deeper than i thought i was ready for and like the, the first two days like i said were really rough because i was like am i even going to be able to get a single animation to work am i even going to be able to get this map scrolling to work and this code is going to look like complete garbage and all of these thoughts that i'm not used to having while i develop stuff i'm used to being very confident in my ability to get stuff done as a programmer and now i felt like a little baby again and that is it's a hard like, it's a wake up call that like you don't know everything even though you're a developer with like 10 years of experience or whatever so that's more or less what i had to talk about for code now i want to talk about the aftermath which is publishing the game and a few other things so I published this game on itch.io. So itch.io is pretty popular in uh, indie gaming circles as being sort of the indie alternative to Steam. Uh, there are lots of really appealing things about it, uh, namely that it's sort of like Bandcamp where you can say a free or give me a donation for this. Uh, I didn't want to have to set up payments because I had literally an hour to set everything up. So I just made it completely free, which is fine, I guess. Honestly, the experience of publishing to itch.io was very nice. Uh, when you're coming from the App Store and what used to be iTunes Connect, that is a generally pretty shitty experience. Uh, but itch is pretty nice. Although the one note I have is that I guess the site was being pounded because of all the game jam people and half the strings in the submission form refused to load to me. Uh, so I was on the page to submit my game and half of the strings on the page were just dot, dot, dot. Um, and that doesn't make it easy to select the right things in drop down menus or whatever. Um, your pricing options too, when all of the three pricing options are dot, 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 
you guess until you get it. Uh, so that was kind of weird. Um, one of the things I love about Love as a game engine is that making executable versions of your game is relatively simple. Uh, in the case of the Mac version, you drag a file into the resources folder of the .app that they give on their website, and you just give that to someone and they can run it. Um, so that's pretty cool. If you're on Linux, it's a little harder because there are so many Linux distros and library versions and all of that stuff that generally they recommend uh, giving people a .love file, which is kind of a zip file with all of your game assets in it that the game can, uh, that the game engine can recognize and they can install the love engine on their computer and then put the love file in it and play your game. And on Windows, you just literally concatenate your .love file to the end of the .exe and you can distribute that exe. So pretty easy distribution. Uh, in fact, that's kind of the reason we chose it uh, or I chose it is because I knew that I was going to be on a Mac and that Wolf would be on Windows. And the easier we can make it to distribute cross-platform binaries to each other is uh, the best route in my book. Um, one thing that I did not do, though, is I didn't code sign because I had an hour to get this stuff done and I didn't want to go mess around on the Apple developer site in, especially since it took us like 40 minutes to publish for some reason, which was weird. I forgot some things. Uh, I forgot to disable the debugger. So there is this great debugger, uh, for, uh, love games and Lua in general called Lovebird. I think we even mentioned it on the previous episode about love and that sets up a web server. So first time users of the game may get a prompt from their firewall telling them hey it's trying to set up a web server are you okay with this uh so yeah that kind of sucked yep it asked me when i want to open it on my mac because uh, yeah i played on a work computer and it's fire firewall on but i realized i also have the firewall on on my previous computer so wouldn't be surprised i will ask me that all the time don't tell me if you found this yet because i'm saving it for your thoughts section but i forgot to remove a win button in the main menu uh, we changed the ending at the very last minute. I swear it was like 8.43 and the jam was finishing at 9 or whatever. And I was still working on the ending. So I needed a button that I could press to just skip straight to the ending. And I forgot to take that button out of the main menu. So you can just win immediately by pressing that button in the main menu. Don't tell me if you found it yet. Okay. I was about to tell you, but... No, no, I, I want to hear it in the thoughts section, your thoughts section. Okay, for sure. And then, like, the the last sort of effect on me that I got uh, because I did this game jam was heightened awareness of game design when playing games, whether they be video games or otherwise. So a lot of times now when I'm finding myself playing games, I'm asking myself, why does X mechanic make me feel good? Or why does Y mechanic make me feel bad? How well does this game perform within the constraints that are inherent to the platform it's on? A bunch of stuff like that. Um, I've always sort of had a tangential interest in game design. For example, uh, we haven't talked about Magic Magic Gathering in a really long time on the podcast, but I'm still very interested in it ever since I started playing it. And there's a very good podcast by Mark Mark Rosewater called uh, Drive to Work, where they discuss basically every single design decision made in magic ever uh, and give like the justification behind it uh, what ideas they tried during development that they ended up rejecting because it was too broken or whatever so it's incredibly interesting if you're in if you're 
at least literate in the world of magic to understand like how this game has lasted almost 25 years uh actually over 25 years and like all of the decisions that go into making what a lot of people consider to be one of the greater games of all time another thing is i just feel like maybe not immediately but I want to get better at game development so I can make more cool random projects every once in a while. Uh, so this week, people are talking a lot about Playdate, which is Panic's new uh, handheld that they announced this week. Uh, and yes, I mean Panic, the Mac developer people, uh, in case you're not entirely in the loop. Uh, they announced a new handheld this week, which kind of looks like a yellow Game Boy Pocket from the past, fused together with the Teenage Engineering uh, synthesizers, which have always looked awesome and made me wish I could play music. Um, so now they sort of just jammed those two things together into their own handheld, which is called Playdate and is coming out early next year. And they have a Lua-based SDK for it, which runs on the Mac, which sounds perfect for me. So now I'm thinking, hmm, could I make a project for that thing? That would be pretty cool. I have a funny story about the playdate already. It's like I put my name in the the mailing list, yeah. And then I assume the checkbox was about like, oh, just give me some news later, like or oh, send me more news about it. I'm like, nah, not checking it. So I kind of half read it, and then a couple of the after on the same night I was like looking at Twitter, like people was like, oh, don't forget to check the checkbox. I'm like, what do you mean, don't forget to check the checkbox? Oh, it's about developer details, not just more news. Ah, uh, crap. Yep. So, oh well, I could just put my name again, but I'm a bit lazy. Yeah, uh, I'm very interested in that. Although, especially if it's Lua based, I know you have a lot of experience with Lua in the past. So, yeah, I I like Lua a lot. It has a lot of issues, but I also really like it. It's like JavaScript, but slightly better with different trade offs. Um, so yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Now, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the game. Good. So. Last weekend when we met, yes, you tell me what type of like what genre of game it was. Yes, and that's the only thing you told me. And I say I'll play, but strategy RPG are not my forte. Usually, I'm like I really suck at them. At least this one, uh, and I think it's gonna like the one the one you use for comparison. It was like okay, it's not that bad because like when I need to mix attacking and defending my comp or my uh, my my character plus also be kind of strategic on the play field with where I position them. Like it's too much, too much variable for me. I'm like, it's too much for me. So since you said, oh, oh, you should be able to like beat it in like 20 minutes. It's like, okay. Uh, at first, every time P, I'm kind of a jerk for that, sadly. Every time a friend tell, give me an app, I always try to make it break. <laughs> so that's how you play RPGs. I mean, yeah, but not that way. Like first thing, I didn't do that, but the first thing I did is I started a game and then I forgot that it was, uh, the WASD. I'm like, what the fuck? Why can't use their arrows? But then I remembered that it was WASD for the controllers, uh, the controls, excuse me. And, uh, once I launched the game, I was like, oh, let's move the cursor around. And then, oh, that was not bad. It's the cursor stays there on, unless you go up, 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 up and then it disappears. Uh, so I, I was, I think, fun for that at least at 10 minutes trying to find stuff. I didn't find the hidden button. I think that's where I need to say it now. Okay. Uh, I did end up as like, ah, oh, let me just try to click, 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 click. But, uh, <laughs> that didn't work. So I guess I needed to just do like up, down, left, right for enough time that it, it will work. No, no, no. So 
the hidden button to okay. win the game. Whoa, 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 Spoiler whoa, whoa, alert. Let me draw. Okay, so I'll, I'll real time follow up. I'll try to boot the game right now. Hopefully, we don't get the music and shit. Okay, finder. So let's go in my downloads. Okay, I'm booting the game. Yes. Okay. So it's in the main menu. Yeah, so it's in the play controls and quit. Yes. No, it starts the game. Shit. <laughs> I, oh. I don't think you're you're not listening literally to what I'm saying because it's real dumber. Do you want me to spoil it? Yes. Okay, if you press the P button. Oh my fucking god, it works. Of course it works. <laughs> so if you press the P button in the main menu, you will be taken immediately to the ending screen. So if you are too bad to beat the game, you can go straight to the ending. This is definitely not a debug thing that I forgot. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I should have bashed the keyboard. That would be a good way to find it, though. Yeah, I, the worst thing is I realized it while I was demoing to someone else, and I sort of accidentally hit P, and I was like, "Shit, <laughs> I forgot to get rid of the instant win button." <laughs> But that's good then you can just show them oh my game is just uh fancy out from woof and then play again and voila you just play again and it it starts yeah <laughs> that's okay so, come on it happens okay so aside from that what are your um, thoughts on the game so uh like i said i saw the uh special effects or special attacks yeah i didn't understand the how to get the currency but i kind of saw there was some currency so that's why i end up not move my character around but like look around the map a lot and it's like there's nothing where do i find this stuff and then i was i saw the sacrifice on the normal people but i didn't do what it did so i was like okay there's that but i don't know what it does uh but yes in general take you, you, your fair assessment of like if you don't use the special effects uh the the game is quite easy to beat yeah i was like yeah okay the the, the enemies are like you're kind of on one side of the map and the enemies are on the other side of the map so you kind of have to come for uh come uh, move to the middle of the map and then uh, have a big fight there so that was okay and then you're correct that also i've seen that the enemies sometimes will come next to me in their turn i'm like why are you not attacking me they're not attacking me i don't know why but they were not they're not because i didn't code it in the ai <laughs> ah okay so they, they they converge to your position but they don't attack you yeah they can't do two things in one turn so they can move or attack but i thought you could move and attack in your personal turn yes players can the ah, ai can't okay okay i see i see Okay, uh, so there was that, and I think I spent maybe about 30 minutes playing with it, and I was like, yep, yeah, the first round, since I was a bit lost at the beginning, um, I played it one on the first round, and I was like, well, that's nice, that's nice, uh, and I was a bit uh, sad that I didn't find the Easter egg of the instant win, <laughs> because he told me about it, I was like, hey, that's why I was clicking, and then, uh, but now I, didn't, I forgot to, to realize that since it was not mouse click, that I should just bash the keyboard until something happens. Yeah. But that's okay. I uh, know for that, uh, like, I don't know what else to say, to be honest. Like, like the music was good. I played yeah. that, uh, two nights ago and it was a bit loud. So then he was like, I want to go to bed. The music is loud. <laughs> I'm like, well, the music is fun though. Uh, yeah. the repeating loop, the repeating loop is quite good. The, the, the way it is kind of like, like attached together or the way it's been composed is really nice. So you, you don't really realize that it's a loop, but it is, of course. Yeah, it was really weird because obviously, like, I get this MP3 file or whatever, and I'm listening to it, and I'm like, 
oh, okay, I wonder if this loops correctly. And then I like, I had to figure out how to get it to loop in code, which was a little bit tricky because there was an audio API change since the sound manager I was using was written. So I had to go patch the sound manager so that it would loop correctly. Otherwise, it would just crash when it was trying to loop. Oops. Um, yeah. And it looped perfectly. And I was really uh, surprised. But I, I guess Wolf did it on purpose. Right? Yeah, of yeah, course, uh-huh. but like I didn't expect it to be that good first try. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. So yeah, that uh that I realized. Uh I did like the look of the game itself, like with the mm-hmm. kind of like 8-bit characters and like like the well, it could be 16, I don't know. I always get lost with this uh, nomenclature, but like old square pixels, let's call it this way. Yeah. Uh that I liked a lot. Um and I think it goes, uh, it goes to your, uh, quite me- quick mention of the, of the new Panic console, which is as kind of a good screen, but a bad screen at the same time for this purpose. So it is a premium black and white LCD. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that the look of it was good. Um, so yeah, I, to go back to the, my first experience with it, I was like, I was trying to make sure there was nothing. That's why I, I spent, I think like two or three minutes, like just moving around the mm-hmm. map and just make sure that there's nothing and then this is like okay then there's those there are enemies uh and stuff but yeah uh, having known that how to like having known how to use the special effects i would have used them uh so that's maybe where i need some uh, more clarification so you just like you sacrifice your uh general uh characters and then you just get the credit by doing that or you need to go go to their position and then get the credit. No, no, you you get it immediately. Okay, and but they are they coming back on because I don't No, they're they're just dead for the rest of the level. Okay. Okay. So they you just so the idea is either you keep them and then you win or you kill them but you get more credits and then you see if you can win uh, with only the hero characters. Yeah, you can like challenge yourself to do things with only the two hero characters if you want. It's actually really easy if you get the right combination of powers. Hmm. Okay. Uh, okay, that makes sense. I guess what will happen is after the uh, episode, I'll just maybe play it again to see what I can do with uh, the special effects. But I think you described them uh, quite well. I was quite surprised too. Uh, of course, I don't know it for the Mac, but I was quite surprised that it was available for all platforms, including Linux. And I think that's the magic of love that just runs everywhere. Yeah, we could have made like handheld version, well, not handheld, but like um Android and iOS versions too. The problem is I have no idea how it performs if you don't add like a virtual D-pad or something. Mm. And I didn't have the time to add that, so I didn't bother. Um But yeah, generally, it's pretty easy to port to those platforms as well. Um And the other thing is, well, I can't really put an IEP file on itch for people to download to put on their phones like yeah, yeah. I, I could do it for android but not for the ios so i was like yeah eh, why bother no that's a that's a good point but no that, that that surprised me because it seemed that like i would have assumed that i don't know that uh if that wolf was a windows user so i would have assumed yeah just one and that's it uh but now to see all those platforms uh, it's quite good uh it seems that isn't it for linux that you kind of need you don't because like for windows and mac the love environment is kind of in the dot app. Yeah, so. you have to download the love runtime from your package manager for your Linux distro, and then you drag the love file into it, and it'll run. Right. So, so yeah, you need more stuff, but it's still available. So that was good, and I think that's kind of all I had to say with it. I was surprised. It was a good time playing it. Uh, like you said, uh, 
then I, th- I think if you're better than me at understanding uh, strategy RPG, I think like t- in 10, 15 minutes, you'll be able to uh, beat the game, the game and have uh, quite uh, some fun. Yeah, it's not a good strategy RPG game. It is a functional one, and that is more than I had hoped for. So it's good. It's a, it's a success according to me. Uh, it's also like a great learning experience. Like now, I'm much more comfortable in the world of game dev. I think Woof was pleasantly surprised at the level of polish we got out of it, considering it's my first game ever. Um, like it, I feel like. Yeah, we could have done more polish because you can always put more polish, but I feel like at least it's not embarrassing for Wolf to have his art in my game, whereas that was pretty much what I had been dreading uh, the entire time. So it turned out pretty well. Um, Wolf has opened the invitation if we ever want to do more game jams or more games in the future. That was my next question. Are, like, are you planning to do the same one next year or you might also plan to do more uh, game jam during the year? Well, the next one would be in October, except I'm probably going to be in Japan then. So I'm not going to be able to do that one. I don't know if we'll do it next year. We haven't really talked about that, though. We are looking at whether or not we could do a game together, and that Ooh. would be very exciting. Um, so stay tuned, I guess. But at least this time, unlike the previous episode when we were just like ambiguously talking about a game that will never come out, uh, <laughs> now I at least have something to show for it. Good. Yep, that's it. That's good. So if you want to play the next game, I'm sure it will put again a link to it in the show notes. And if you want to see all the links that he put about love, the love engine, or all of the uh, stuff, I'm sure you also put a link to Wolf's portfolio on the web. Uh, you will be able to find that on our website at limitlesspossibly.net slash 113 because we're at the, I want to uh, jump in because I forgot to mention something. <laughs> Hey, okay, sure, that's okay. I'm not bitter that you're bringing the outro, but sure. Sorry, I I didn't mean it, but it's something I definitely do want to mention, which is a big thanks to RxI. Uh, RxI on GitHub is one of the biggest contributors to the love community uh, in terms of libraries and all of that stuff. Um, And I think more than half the dependencies in our project are RxI libraries. Hmm. And I think it's very important to thank people who do like significant library dependencies that you depend on because they often go with little to no recognition. And RxI, without his work or their work, I don't know their gender, um, without their work, we never would have been able to get this game out within 72 hours. And I'm sure I'm not the only person. So on behalf of everyone who develops on top of love, big thanks to our XI. Okay, you can go on with yeah, the Yeah, now that I look at it, you kind of made me realize that I didn't look at the about box and the about box. Uh, love provides the default about box, so you were safe, so that's good. But you could have provided more uh, like uh, like open source licenses there, stuff like Actually, that. Actually, all of that is on GitHub because our game is ah, open source, so you can go see it on. See, okay, then that's good. Uh, so to go back to this, uh, I'm sure all of those links included those like third party libraries, the code on GitHub, uh, the game itself on itch.io. They all will all be on, uh, our website at limitlesswasity.net slash 113. So one, one and three. Uh, to go to our back catalog, to just give you an idea, last week, uh, last episode, we talked about NSNode 2019 and a lot of other varied topic and subjects you can find it on limitlesspossibility.net you can 
you can find the news about the, uh, the podcast on Twitter. That's at Limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. That was hard to say. I will blame Yannick for that. Uh, you can find also myself on Twitter at, at Lucanus. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks for WWDC. Yay! Dum dum.